Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, we're, we're back. This is episode, I think, 15. Um, yeah, we're, we're deep into the double digits now. And, and you, uh, you brought with us, a, you brought to us a really exciting guest. Yes, yeah, so uh, we're really, really honored to have Doug Holtz-Eakin here today. Um, Doug, you were the former head of CBO. Correct. In the mid-2000s. 2003 to 2005. Okay, and, I was, uh, and now you're the president of the American Action Forum. Yes, it's a think tank. Right. And so on the CBO thing, right before we started taping, I was asking you if it was correct to say that you were the CBO director during the Bush administration, but that's a little misleading. So why is that misleading? Uh, the CBO director is an appointment of the Congress. It's a joint appointment of the Speaker of the House and the President pro tem of the Senate. So in my case, uh, the late uh, Senator Stevens and Speaker Denny Hassett. Okay. And did you go through a confirm? like, is it just an appointment? Do you go through some type of uh, vote on the Senate floor, like an executive appointment? Or no, you, once you're appointed, you're appointed. Um, there's a, a, a pro forma vote taken, uh, but you, it really is an appointment of the, the jo- a joint appointment. They take turns uh, leading the search. So in my case, the house, it was the House's turn. And the House Budget Committee, led by Jim Nussel, actually is the group that selected me. Okay, yes, and I I worked for Jim Nussel when he was the director of OMB. Wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, all right, so so CBO is one of these organizations that uh, I, I would argue has been kind of somewhat obscure to the American public for a long time. <laughs> Breaking my heart here. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> OMB is the same way. Yeah. Way less obscure right now. <laughs> but very, very not obscure right now, and and probably now much more famous than uh, than the Office of Management and Budget. Um, and so we thought it would be good to, to 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 have you in and just talk to you about about the role of CBO, the various activities that it engages in. There's a lot of discussion on the national discourse about you know the absence of CBO scores or CBO uh, analytics. There's criticism of CBO right now. But separating from that, let's start just with kind of a a solid understanding uh, of CBO's role in the process. So CBO came about because the Congress had appropriated some money, and then President Nixon refused to spend it. And ultimately, they sued the president, went to the Supreme Court. And in the aftermath of this, the Congress decided they wanted to have their own budgeting capability. They wanted the equivalent of what OMB is. And so they... Uh, put together the Congressional Budget Act, and it created the Congressional Budget Office as well as the budget committees and the process by which budgets get developed and and executed on the congressional side. And the CBO's job in that process is to, A, be nonpartisan, and B, advise the Congress as to the budgetary consequences of the bills that they are undertaking debate on. That's its core mission. It has a second role that's developed over time, which is to do studies on particular topics at the request of Congress. So it really has core budgeting and then sort of a think tank piece. So when you say nonpartisan, like how does that, how does that get preserved? It's, it's civil servants only, who, who can hire and fire them? So talk to us a little bit about the independence of CBO. Uh, it, it was built uh, essentially as a congressional committee. And so they are not civil servants. They don't have uh, sort of civil servant protections. 
there are performance reviews and serious ones. Uh, there are standard labor law protections, but uh, you, you can fire people at CEBO, and I did. I fired six people because we felt they weren't performing well. And um, so its independence and its success, I think, come from really two sources. Uh, number one, the original director, Alice Rivlin, did a fantastic job of setting up the CBO and building into uh, the internal processes checks to make sure we, they weren't leaning one direction or another. And the second thing that happened was um, the budget committees, when they showed up, they were the new kids on the block. And, and everybody hated them. Like, the appropriators did not want these budget committee guys telling them they couldn't spend money. And right. you can imagine how that was going. So to, to sort of enhance their, their authority and their prestige, they kept building up the CBO. They would say, oh, we don't, we don't want to do this, but the, the CBO says. Yeah. And in the process, they gave the CBO the room to run to become a first-rate analytic organization. That's really what it, what it was. Doug, you said something very interesting that, that um, Director Rivlin uh, created these checks to make sure that it maintained yeah. um, nonpartisanship. What, what are those checks like? Do they exist today? How have they developed over time? Yeah, so the important thing is that some people confuse nonpartisanship and bipartisanship. Bipartisanship means you split them 50-50. Nonpartisanship just says you, you call them the way you see them and you're done. And so that is a, a fact-based uh, um, operation, nonpartisanship. And so there's a heavy emphasis on, on being up-to-date on the facts, both in terms of data, but also in terms of the research out there that's been done by the large research community, academia, think tanks, whatever it may be. CBO's basic rule of thumb is we are going to look at a literature, find out what the, the, the consensus is or the midpoint in, in the range of views, and that will be our estimate. And it's the constant checking up on that, internal reviews of papers, make sure everyone agrees that the, the data has been done correctly and the research is up to date, the surveys are right. You know, it's, it's an ongoing process. So it's so a different type of question. So the day after a presidential election or the day, maybe more accurately, after the inauguration, this, the CBO workforce essentially can – there's nothing relevant about an election or an inauguration that impacts who – is employed in CBO. Do I have that right? That's absolutely correct. No presidential appointees, no electoral consequences. Now, Sim what happens if the Congress switches over? Let's say House suddenly goes from Republican to Democrat. Does that have any impact on, for example, who's this? Can the CBO director then be? Would it would it be typical for the CBO director to be replaced at that point? Uh, uh, CBO's directors are appointed for four-year terms, and they're about as hard to remove as the Fed chair. Okay. And so you, you will be there if if it switches. The one thing that has shown up through time is that if you get splits in Congress, one party in the House, one party in the Senate, the CBO director has often been uh, a vacant seat for, for extended periods of time. They've been acting directors for years, in fact, in times. Got it. Okay. All right. So now we've kind of established the, the, uh, the nonpartisanship, not the bipartisan, but the nonpartisanship yeah. of the organization. So let's like, make it from a practical standpoint, you know, just thinking like, you know, going back to like PBS, like how a bill becomes a bill. Like, you know, <laughs> I won't sing unless no, Schoolhouse Rock. Schoolhouse that's Rock. School that's what House, I yeah. meant. I couldn't that was like, like that yeah, was like Schoolhouse ABC, Rock. Though, Saturday morning. Yeah, it wasn't PBS. Okay, so Schoolhouse Rock. Where does where does CBO fit in? So so we're sitting down. 
to um, to write a piece of legislation. Let's just take, for example, immigration reform or something like that. Mm -hmm. When does CBO get involved in the process? Uh, the sooner the better from the point of view of the legislation. Uh, CBO will, in the end, score what is written. It, it, it is very careful to not score what isn't the intent of the authors or the dreams of the authors. They will score whatever is in the bill. And so it's important that what's written match what, what the Congress is trying to do. And the best uh, insurance against sort of missteps on that front is, you know, members of like the uh, whatever committee of jurisdiction is going to be doing it, Ways and Means, Energy and Commerce, that are, they'd all be involved, will, you know, start talking to CBO on a confidential basis, say, look, we're thinking about doing this. How would you guys be thinking about this? Okay. And they, they sort of get a little insight into what the pitfalls might be and, and things they might not have thought about. And then, is there and a then, formal moment? Like, so, for example, a lot of bills get introduced, I assume, that never get a formal CBO score because they're not going anywhere, it's not relevant, it's a bill introduced to rename a post office or something. Is there a formal moment where CBO gets asked to score a bill? Yes, before it can have consideration on the floor, uh, it, there will have to be a CBO score that can be waived uh, pretty easily in both chambers, as it turns out, and often is, but, but that's the formal moment when CBO enters the process. Prior to voting for final passage, you have to, in the House or the Senate, you have to have the CBO okay. score. Okay. Um, as I said, that, that's often not the case. And, and CBO does an enormous amount of so-called cost estimates, right? So the basic scoring process is you, the CBO prepares every year uh, what the federal budget will look like if we put it on autopilot. We take the current law and we just extrapolate it for, for 10 years at the moment. And then a cost estimate is how does that change because of this particular piece of legislation? How much more does spending go up or down? Taxes go up or down? What's the net impact? And, and so CBO does that activity. At my t that time I was there, it was about, there were about 3,000 a year of, of formal cost estimates that got signed and sent to the Congress. And there were probably three times that many in terms of informal work with the, the committee kinds right. of estimates. I think one way to think about it is CBO's role, there's, there's kind of individual actions that CBO is helping uh, inform what the uh, impact is going to yeah. be. But there's also a lot of macroeconomic input, right? Because the CBO will, will, do, will, will generate a, a, a sense of, or a prediction or an estimate of what the budget deficit is. Yeah. And that's big news when they come out with that, right? Yes. And th that can be quite uh, difficult. Imagine doing the, the forecast of the economy at the depths of the Great Recession. How quickly will it recover? Well, how many people will be on different benefit programs? What will the spending look like? Congress had a stimulus program. Implicitly, the CBO was saying, worked, didn't work, by, by showing what the, yeah. the recovery was. So there's a, 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 there's a fair amount of just difficult work and political um, landmines that come with that portfolio. There's no well, question. I, I imagine you, you're being asked these kind of oracular questions, you know. Uh, tell us when the, the uh, global financial crisis will end. And what will what will be the you know the size of GDP as we grow out of it? At the same time, you're yes. giving these nonpartisan. Seeing the future answers. perfectly is a big help. Yeah, and do that. <laughs> yeah, right, right, and then you're being asked to do it in a nonpartisan way. So you're going to answer uh, you're going to answer with a number that is at best a a a very very scientific guess. Yeah. And, and you're going to answer in a way that says we think this policy will work, we think this policy won't. You. I know you had a controversial turn 
around tax policy was one of the mm -hmm. big issues you had to 2003 tax cuts yes right you know would they work you know we did the first dynamic scoring back at that time it was a you know it was viewed as an imperative for the the director to bring budgetary analysis into the modern age that was the republicans view and so you know my view was I don't object to, to looking at the growth consequences of, of important tax policies. We'll take a look. But let's not pretend that you just get the tax policy. At the same time they did that, they did the Medicare prescription drug bill. And I think however you might want to think about giving seniors $400 billion worth of financial protection against the cost of drugs, that's not exactly a pro-growth move. Right? That's, a, that's, that's just about their welfare. So we did them all together. And um, I thought that what they would learn from that is if you combine good pro-growth tax policy with these other things that don't enhance growth, the outcome's going to be so-so. What they concluded was, I did it wrong. <laughs> oh, well. Right. Right. Which, which is, it's that could be a good segue, actually. The underlying thematic challenge of CBO, right? Sure. I actually think yeah. it was, I actually think it was this very, very kind of almost idealistic kind of notion that we're going to create this nonpartisan set of expert you know, um, uh, referees mm -hmm. and dump them in the middle of a, of a political game and then have people not get mad at the referees. So rem remember, formally, CBO isn't the referee. This mm -hmm. is sort of part of the magic. The budget committees are official scores for Congress. Mm -hmm. The budget committees deliver the scores to the floor. CBO is entirely advisory. But because the last thing the budget committee wants is to be in the middle of these messes, they just hand it back to CBO and say, these guys are the experts. This is, this is what, what they playing. say. So we have to listen to them. So this is sort of piece number one. Piece number two, it is fundamentally the truth that, that the more important is a bill, two things are true. Number one, the more political heat's going to be coming from every side and the more CBO will, will hear about it from everybody. But more from the party of the director, right? Because all CBO directors fail their own party in their eyes, right? They, they claim they want you to be nonpartisan. They claim they want you to just do your best job, but they really want you to put your thumb on the scale, and when you don't, they get mad. So everybody hears more. Like right now, Keith Hall's the CBO director. He's hearing from the Republicans. It always happens. I heard from the Republicans. Um, the second thing that's, that's true and, and really ironic is at the times when CBO is most important, like right now with a health care bill or you know back with the stimulus or anything, it's when they're doing something new. Like I, I was there for, for the prescription drug bill. There were, at that point was no financial product that existed in nature that shielded seniors from the cost of their outpatient drugs. Right. So at the time when you're most important, you have the least research guidance on what you're doing. Like there's, there, there is no other thing like this. How are we gonna figure out what happens? So they're, they're doing their job, but they're doing it in very treacherous circumstances. No research support, a lot of politicization. You know, you just hang in there. Plus, typically, there's two scores out there, if you will, because the executive branch arm, the yes. Office of Management and Budget, is indicating what they think yep. the cost growth, the cost is going to be, and all these other programmatic impacts. Because one clarification is that I think intuitively you think, oh, it's the Congressional Budget Office. They're going to tell me what things cost and what it doesn't cost. But the reality is the CBO also weighs in on things like job impact, and 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 as we saw with the uh, with the healthcare bill, the number the impact the programmatic impact of the number of people who will be insured or not was probably the largest headline coming right. out of the CBO analysis. Yeah. 
In every CBO cost estimate, you know, there'll be a bunch of tables and numbers that say this is what happens to the deficit in these different years, revenue spending. And then there'll be a little section that says basis of estimate, which is really, this is how we got to this conclusion. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something CBO, I think, is obligated to provide. They, there ought to be a level of uh, transparency about how they got there. But you have to figure out how many people will be insured if it's a health bill or whatever it may be. And by providing that basis of estimate, they end up weighing in on the jobs and the number of the uninsured and all those other things. And those are interesting nuggets from a, from a policy debate standpoint, for sure. Right. And so the, the bill that I ultimately ran off, I did not let them publish the CBO cost estimate. When I was uh, at CBO, I was asked to provide a cost estimate on a bill that would have provided a $100,000 death benefit to the family of any soldier killed in Iraq okay. prior to the invasion. And the last thing I wanted to do was predict fatalities in public. Yeah. And so it came down. We did a lot of work on it. But I went up and I sat with leadership and I said, I understand this is important. Please don't make us put this out unless we really, really, really have to. <laughs> and we ultimately never had to, and I was quite grateful. What? what <laughs> yeah. That, I, I mean, it's just, that's going to be hard to top that. But what other, <laughs> what other examples of of legislative initiatives have you had put before you that you, you kind of scratch your head and said, "I'm I'm not sure I want to I want to wade in on this from a CBO standpoint." Because oh, I guess you have. So some. there's terrorism risk insurance. So mm -hmm. that's the uh, federal government providing a financial backstop to the U.S. property and casualty insurance industry in the event of an unknown terrorist event in an unknown location, at an unknown time, using an unknown weapon, biological, nu nuclear, radiological. What's that cost? What's that cost? Okay, so this is a this is a good build up. We're gonna we're gonna take a second. We're gonna we're gonna take a quick break here so that you can limber up and get ready for the next part where where we try to stay away from current affairs, but CBO is so current right now that right. we'd love to get some of your. And we'll jump in. We'll do the geeky version of the right. current debate around CBO scoring and, sure. and, and where we are today. Yeah, okay, but we'll need to take a quick break to get ready for that. I, apparently. Yes. Okay, right. very good. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. Gov Actually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. And Seamless Docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud. Seamless Docs helps make government beautiful. All right, we're back. Um, and we, in the first segment, I think, laid a good foundation for, for the role of CBO. But, you know, we started the, the podcast by talking about how prominent CBO has been in the news lately. And I think one, th there's a couple of different reasons. And one of the main reasons was uh, when the uh, updated version of the Affordable Care Act or health care reform was passed by the House. It was passed without a CBO score. So it was voted on without CBO analysis explaining its impacts. And that was a, a kind of a lightning rod talking point used by those that were critical of health care reform proposal as saying, you know, it's somewhat reckless to, uh, to pass a bill without that CBO analysis. Is it, you know, what is the, what's the, what's your view in terms of what are some of the risks and tensions and trade-offs involved in, uh, in moving forward with legislation like that without a CBO analysis? 
So I, I wasn't troubled by that, to be honest. Um, the, there had been a CBO score on the original version of the bill, uh, and there had been three major amendments offered. And the cost of those major amendments was pretty easy to figure out because one said we're going to spend $8 billion, another said we're going to spend 15 and then the third basically didn't have any real impact. It was for show. So it was about, going to cost about $23 billion more, and anyone could figure that out. And CBO's main role at that point is to make sure that the legislation meets the budgetary targets, which is save $2 billion over 10 years, low bar. It was going to save well in excess of 100 to right. begin with. So my view was the House is in no danger of passing a bill that doesn't meet the budgetary requirements. It, it, it can go forward. It's a different thing to say the Senate should pick up and start without getting a full analysis of the final House passed version. They shouldn't. And they right, won't. Because they, it then came out. Because there's still time. In other words, yeah. going back to the Schoolhouse Rock conversation, when the House passes the bill, and what you're saying is they pass the bill not with a blank sheet of paper on analysis, but no. with a substantial amount of analysis because the precursor bill was, was there, so close to the so final close. bill. Right. Now, we do have a CBO analysis on the bill right yep. as it goes to the Senate for consideration. So yes. everyone's informed, and there's going to be a point at which the Senate will send a version of the bill potentially back to the House. And again, now we have public knowledge about where this right. is from an analytics standpoint. Yeah, the Senate's going to modify or write their own. I mean, it doesn't really matter That's that how they get there. But they're going to have something they're going to vote on. There ought to be an analysis of that before they take the vote. And and then, you know, we see where we are. The, the big news about the bill was not the cost of the bill, right. but the impact of the bill. And that's what's interesting is the conversation around CBO right now is really about something that is kind of tangential to CBO's role, right? It, it, this yeah. is you know, this is supplementary information, right? They're the Congressional Budget Office, and not the Congressional Insurance Office, right? But that, that that did become the centerpiece. That happens a lot, right? We we when, again in my day we were doing a different kind of insurance. It was for outpatient prescription drugs, the Part D program. And, and there were the same kinds of questions. How many seniors will, we, will be covered? What kind of premiums will I have to pay? And, you know, we, we went through the same kind of uh, political fighting that you're seeing right now. I think part of that is because, like, let's hypothetically, if there was legislation to change Part D, which is yeah. the prescription drug, I mean, it would have a cost impact. Yep. But I think for most members of the public to hear the news that as a result of this bill, the deficit, instead of being $600 billion three years from now, is going to be $420 billion three years from now, does not hit them. It doesn't practically impact them. They can't get their mind around it. But to hear that their premiums will change or the benefits yes. will change or certain drugs, families of drugs, will no longer be covered, or now that's... Many millions of people will no longer be insured, which is the big issue that... that yes. And what's people who oppose the bill are highlighted. And what's really, really interesting is that is that it's not like no one's talking about those issues. It's that the two political parties are talking about those two issues and have their own versions of of what they believe the analysis is. And usually those anal analytics are counter to one another. And then all of a sudden you have this nonpartisan body coming in saying, well, actually, what we think the answer is, and then it's and whoever it favors, seize on it and it becomes it becomes right. a lightning rod and, and, and you know i people have to ask me during this 
period. And he said, oh, is, is this terrible for CBO? Is this, you know, it's like, look, this is business as usual. This happens. Um, the, the one part about this that I never like, and I don't, I don't like here, is it is fair for those who are disappointed to question the analytic foundations of, of the score. They can. You can say, look, I don't think the individual mandate's that powerful. I don't, I don't think getting rid of it's going to change it that much. Here's my reading of the literature, blah, whatever that might be. That's a, a reasonable, highly geeky uh, dissent. Yeah. It's not okay to say they're bad people, they're politically motivated, you know, question their integrity, right. things like that. Because that's just not true. And, and, and they're not out there tilting the playing field deliberately. And, and now we have this, uh, and maybe you can tell me whether this is business as usual or not, we have this harder edge conversation around whether CBO has now outrun its usefulness. Has it become politicized? What's your... What's your thought about whether? I 100% disagree with that. And uh, among the mistakes made in those comments was, was somehow that they were abusing their authorities. As I said before, they have no authority. They, are, they work at the discretion of the budget committees, their, their direct congressional masters, and the Congress as a whole. Um, they are advisory, and, and they can't make the Congress do anything. And for someone to somehow think that getting good advice has somehow run its course seems really misplaced to me. Yeah, and so, yeah, so that's an interesting point. The budget <laughs> committees, as you said earlier, could direct a different, you could take the CBO score and say, or CBO analysis and say, thank you, but here's what we yes. present as the final analysis, as the budget indeed, committee. Indeed, that is a practice known as directed scoring. And when yes. I was appointed CBO director, then Speaker Hastert said, pulled me aside and said, look, there may be an occasion when I am forced to do directed scoring and we'll write in a different number and I want you to know that I will only do that under the most important of circumstances and that it's not a question about your professional integrity. It just may be that the process needs something like that. So he just warned me and it happened once on my watch and where we wrote down a number, they wrote down a zero. It didn't cost anything. And okay. <laughs> that, that, that was life. I think that would be big news right now if something. It like would be that big happened. news right now, but you can see it. You you can't you can't just do that, that, because the budget committees have done a very good job of convincing people that CBO produces good numbers. So you can't just toss them overboard. But but that's actually one of the that's one of the talking points right now that CBO doesn't produce good numbers, that CBO's power of estimation is uh, is. Uh, has a checkered history. How do you respond so, to that? So there are, um, there's a big difference between scoring a bill and forecasting the future. So uh, scoring is a, is a very strange but fine art. Um, and the analogy is this. In football, if you score a touchdown, you get six points. I don't know why. If you kick the extra point, you get one. If you run it across the the the, the the goal line, you get two. Field goals are worth three. Why are those the scores? I don't know. But by scoring in that way, you know which team has more points and thus wins. You can compare scores across games in the league on a given Sunday, over history, whatever it may be. Scoring ranks things. And that's what CBO does when it does its scoring. It wants to rank one version of, say, the, the American Health Care Act, the final one, as more expensive budgetarily than, than the first version. It ranks them absolutely correctly. 
a, a second part of it is they have to do it over the next 10 years, which is they have to, to do it into an unforeseeable future, and they will be wrong, inevitably, and sometimes badly. We, we were off by 40% with the Part D program. Mm -hmm. We thought it was going to be 40% higher than it turned out to be. Um, all you can do is put your estimate in the middle so that you're just as likely to be wrong on the upside as wrong on the downside, knowing you're, you're going to be wrong, unless it's really a miracle. Um, but your real job is to, is to rank everything appropriately so that Congress can make big decisions correctly. This one costs more than that one. We don't want to increase deficits. We're not doing that. And, and the, the scoring gives you that. So the, the sort of complaint about the forecast is very misplaced. I, I don't think that's really their job. Yeah. It's, it's really not about intended to be about precision when you start getting out into the out years. It's supposed to be about directionally. Yes. Where is this public policy taking us? Think about deficit projections. Uh, th these were a big deal when I was director. They're always a big deal. Um, you know, we're going to spend $4 trillion. We're going to raise about $3.6 trillion. Those are two very big numbers. If you make a tiny percentage error on, on either side, on either one, you make a huge error in the deficit, which is the difference between those numbers. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, So deficit projections are basically uh, almost impossible. I did a study when I was CBO. We compared our projections to those of the Office of Management Budget, to those of the Federal Reserve, and my conclusion was that uh, one year out we were all terrible, two years out it wasn't worth reading. And that's because it's just really hard. Were, were you all equally bad? Yeah, we were. <laughs> and what was interesting about it is, we have a particular set of handcuffs at CBO, which is you have to do it under current law. And so you're likely to be wrong because the whole point is to change the law. OMB has a set of golden handcuffs. That they do everything under the president's program, right? So they, you have to assume everything the president's proposing is going to get enacted, and that never happens. So you know they're going to be wrong. And the Fed can do whatever they want. As it turns out, all three had lots of problems. It's a, it's a tough business. Yeah, so, so on this healthcare <laughs> thing, when people say 23 million people are going to lose health care coverage, the better talking point is, or the more accurate one is, that a nonpartisan arm of Congress issues an estimate that 23 million people will lose their health care coverage, but it's one that's caveated with it's based on a lot of different unpredictable factors, and this mm -hmm. is their best estimate going forward. Yes. But it's not necessarily going to happen. No. It's just, it's just a nonpartisan view of what they believe is likely to happen based on all these factors. Yes. And, okay. you know, I think... Which, which every there's a nuanced CDO difference between the two. Some oh, might yeah. say, well, Danny, you're, you're parsing. But I think also it's important to, to not overstate the precision by which some of these estimates are generated. There's no doubt about it. Um, so, you know, uh, th there was a period when CBO used to actually put out its budget forecast and show sort of the 95% confidence intervals surrounding it, and it covered the whole page, and the budget committee said, that it looks like you don't know what you're doing. You've got to get rid of that. Um, but it does, but, sound, but it, it does sound like the bigger the, bigger the um, legislative proposal or the, the tougher it's going to be. Yeah, that the the, it, the it's less it's the ultimate irony. Be. So the the more important the score is, the yes, less likely the less you're the less you know about the policy because it's the first time they do something. Mm. And so you know, if if they're going to do another you know sort of appropriations bill or you know ex extend the, the 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 programs we know so well, it's easy to get those right. So as a so I have a question as a student of this area that that you are. Um, comparing OMB to CBO. So mm -hmm. when OMB sits down to do their economic assumptions 
in terms of what the future, what what these moving pieces in the economy are going to do to the deficit picture. Um, I was at OMB for 15 plus years, and my 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 sense of it was that that those assumptions, as much as possible, tried to be divorced from political influence. Um, as, a, as an outsider to OMB, but, as, but being in this space, do you think that that's true? Is there, have they been effective in being divorced from political influence when they build their macro, macroeconomic picture? Has that changed over time? So I'm not an outsider in that I was at the White House twice, 8990, okay. 2001-2002, and in particular in 2001-2002, I prepared those economic assumptions. Okay. In the, in the were you in OMB? I, I was at the Council of Economic Advisors. Oh, okay. So, and yeah, so you yeah, know, okay. we're putting together the right, forecast so with the, the OMP. Right, so you were part yeah, of the Troika. Yeah, 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 Gotcha. And okay. so I, I would say that the characterization is, it is, it, at the very first cut, it is a purely scientific exercise. And then... And there's you look a, at the numbers. And then there's a second cut which says, okay, this is supposed to show the success of the president's program. Right. And this looks just like the blue chip forecast without the president's program being put in it. We can't have that. And that that's politics. Yeah. I don't think it's evil politics. I think it's we need to, to think harder about the benefits of the president's programs for the growth in the economy. And they're never going to put out something that doesn't show them being beneficial. Right. So there is some constraint on it. Because in the end, the president has to sign the budget, and he's not going to send a, sign a budget that says, hey, I have some bad ideas for you. Yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> Whereas but I the assume CBO, that there's th- the CBO, okay. it's, it's just like... It, it is what it is. It is what it is. I mean, they, they have a panel of economic advisors, outside uh, panel, that meets twice a year. They sit and talk with them. They're, you know, some of them are in the business of doing forecasts. They listen to what their forecast is going to be. They prepare their forecast. They get a, essentially a peer review of it. They go back. They modify it. You know, there was, there's been some criticism of OMB with the most recent budget release, I think from both sides of the aisle, mm-hmm. that the um, economic outlook was a little, was too rosy mm-hmm. um, and potentially thought to be unrealistic. Did, did you think that? that did, they, did they move into a space that's a little bit outside of the normal range of, of flexibility that they typically show? So I, I, I looked at this, and I would say two things about it. Number one, if you look at the pace of, of economic growth and the pace of revenue growth, they moved it up by a, basically a percentage point on, on economic growth and a little more than a percentage point on revenue. But it looks just like the CBO relationship between growth and revenue. So it didn't look to me like they, they gamed the, the sort of revenue they were going to get. There's just not a miracle windfall. They are on the outer edges of what you can do to the economy if you get everything right. But remember, the budget is put together, assuming they get everything right. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, they're on the outer edge. But I didn't view it as a right in a, range. A, a huge foul. Like, I, mean, I, like I didn't. To, I like to think about things like here's like a, an aggressive. A, a, it was aggressive. There is no doubt about it. <laughs> it was aggressive. So they There's went no aggressive, but in your opinion, they didn't go outside of of, the, of a the, reasonableness. They didn't go out of the realm of possibility. They didn't. And th- there was a second criticism, which I thought was more serious, which is I couldn't figure out, although the top line looked right, I couldn't figure out where anything came from. I couldn't get it to add up. And that, that Are you talking I, about the $2 trillion issue? Oh, yeah, or so, yeah. Also, yeah. So I just ultimately stopped trying, and so it's, it's on my desk. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I think there's been some congressional testimony, but I think I, when I heard about that issue and I didn't unpack it fully, I just assumed there'll be a moment 
where the director of OMB or the deputy director, someone will sit in a congressional committee and a good member of Congress with yep. who knows the facts will try to unpack the math with them a bit. I hope that happens. I think it because I would imagine OMB wants an ability to defend um, the, uh, the underlying do. integrity of their budget. Of course they do. Yeah. And, and, you know, there will be a moment in the not too distant future where CBO presents to the Congress its, it's, its estimates yeah. of the president's proposals. There will be a difference. And in explaining that difference, they will get one cut at what goes on. And the OMB director and staff will probably have a few things to say about that, too. If, if you accept the idea, though, that... But, see, I think that's a good thing, to, to not to interrupt. But no, it's fine. In terms of you know, CBO's role and why it's important, monopolies are a bad thing. Right. And I think the existence of CBO has made OMB better, and I know OMB's analysis makes CBOs better. I mean, it is a good thing. But, but it's you, uncomfortable in moments. But you can see, but. <laughs> that was you can see, you can see in a world though where where one party controls, you know, both branches mm-hmm. of Congress and the White House. They're not particularly interested. I mean, they've they've got a political monopoly. Mm-hmm. A fact monopoly would be nice too. So I, I could see where, you know, in a in a world where you accept this notion that perhaps our politics has become somewhere on the on the order of hyperpartisan. It makes it hard for a CBO, a nonpartisan organization, to you know continue to to do what it's doing. So yes and no. Um, so I worked at the White House 2001, 2002. I was appointed CBO director. I was the very first CBO director to go directly from the White House to the CBO, and the White House was controlled by Republican. Congress was controlled uniformly by Republicans. It's exactly this this configuration. There were lots of Democrats who were openly skeptical about this whole thing and figured out it was just a hack sent in to ruin the place. And um, it was hard, and in fact impossible, in advance to convince them that it would be fine and, and the place would be okay. I, I, there was, you know, how could they possibly trust me? They didn't. Um, it was not hard to run the place. The, the DNA contained nonpartisanship. I mean, it, it, it would be so hard for a director to go in and actually break the place. It's so deeply ingrained. So I actually didn't have any trouble going in, doing the job. I enjoyed the job. Um, and as it, you know, as it turned out, the products in the end speak for themselves. The Democrats who were skeptical came around. Ken Conrad, who was ultimate chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, one of the, the real skeptics, paid me a, a fantastic compliment. I was going out saying, I didn't think you'd do this. You turned out to be you know, first rate. And so you know, I, I think CBO is a powerful institution in that way. I mean, it's not an entity the director sort of reforms every time. It's there institutionally. If you could be granted one wish uh, to give a gift to CBO, what, what would it be? What, what would be something you would give them, or what would be something you'd change? Is this your closing, like, random it's question? It's close. It's getting there. Okay, because <laughs> I have a closing random question, too. Oh, that's a closing ra- a gift to them? Yeah, oh, I, I you, think... What would you do if you could go back, you could be director for a day, and and have uh, powers uh, plenipotentiary, and you could you do anything for CBO. What what would you do? What would you give them that they don't have right now? I don't know. I think they're in good shape, to be honest. I I, um, I don't think they should get enormously bigger or anything. I mean, they're 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 a, a relatively compact, two hundred thirty odd people. They're nimble. They cover the range of things they do. Um, I don't think I'd change too much of that. I think um, you know. I'd leave CBO the same and ask the Congress to actually do their homework and understand what CBO is up to. Because there are many, even in Congress, who don't understand its role and they get confused by these reports. 
All right, so my random question. So I've had this theory for a long time that um, that the academic community could play a bigger role in public policy and help drive more nonpartisan analytics. And I, I make I've made the point I've written about this that um, like if if there's like a some new theory of black hole or quasar or something with a molecule or something, and, and there's a press article about it, you can't get a paragraph in without three universities being named because they're all kind of on the forefront of what's going on in physics and science. But you can read a hundred articles in a row about the big public policy debates that go on and never, never mention the Harvard Kennedy School or any of the major public policy schools or any of the major universities. And so I, I've talked to a lot of universities leaders and public policy school leaders about this. And one of the reasons they think that is is because they're concerned that if they enter into the fray, they'll get pushed through into a political lens. And it's so important for them to preserve their non-political lens. So my question for you is, do you think there is a need for an infusion of more CBO-like nonpartisan analytics into the public policy debates? And if so, is academia the right place to look to raise their game on this issue? So I, so I think the answer is no, to be honest. Um, well, they already... Really broke Danny's heart. I could well, let me, let me no, tell you, no, you why. Like this is a yeah, no. subtle nuance that not everyone appreciates. Um, you can imagine a couple different ways t this might happen. So, for example, CBO puts out an analysis of something, say the, the Medicare Part D program that I supervised, and, and then you, you say, well... Let's see what the Johns Hopkins folks think of this. Right. The answer is you can't do that. Um, for us, when we did that estimate, we got highly proprietary data from every drug manufacturer in America, and we signed confidentiality agreements, and we swore we wouldn't even let Congress see it, and we wouldn't. And we did, that happens a lot at CBO. And there are there's an enormous array of um, information and expertise that gets shared to allow them to do their job. So you, there's no scientific replicability. It's not the same thing. There's a basis of estimates that says this is how we thought about it and this is the conclusion we drew, but you could never ask someone to do it can't over. Replicate you can't they don't do have it. Access. These yeah. are these are paid professionals who are given to their best judgment, informed by a lot of stuff, sometimes computer models, and sometimes just talking to experts. So I, I don't think that, I've seen people who like want to set up competitors in that way. I don't think that works. What they're already doing, that CBO relies on enormously, is they're looking at all these same issues in their way, doing their research on why people are insured, not insured, why people, you know, do or do not take up welfare programs, what's the impact of work on poverty, all of these things, and CBO minds that to do their, their estimates. And so they, sh they should continue to work on the issues that are relevant today, I think directing them to do research on you know problems of 2017 instead of problems in 1997 would be great because that really would help CBO. But that's the most that's I, that's I'd the push. adjustment. You that's would the make. adjustment I'd push. Yeah, because the think tanks I feel like tend to tend to also and you you could speak to this as well because you run a think tank now. Mm -hmm. They they tend to align politically in many ways and i think and therefore not all of them but you know they yeah, the reputation they start to get reputations yes, they do. of being conservative versus liberal and then their 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 input to the public policy debate starts to kind of fall out at the at the ends of the spectrum versus right. in the middle right. and i've been thinking like it would be really helpful to build a middle yeah no i i understand that yeah. that sentiment i mean you know, for my, for me, I had been in two White Houses. I'd run the CBO. I'd been on the McCain campaign, and in those jobs, I did 
policy research, education options, and advice, but you always did it in a very particular way, unlike when I was an academic, right? I mean, in, in those worlds, you worked on whatever was happening that day. Like, you didn't have the luxury of saying, I do turtle migration. That comes up, give me a call. Like, you're working on whatever's happening, and you have to convey the results in English to non-specialists, whether they're comms people or the political strategists or they're, they're, it's an interagency working group, whatever it may be. And, um, and you did it from a particular point of view. At CBO, it was nonpartisan. At the White House, it was the president's program. On the campaign, it was getting you know, someone elected, which I didn't. And um, I liked that work. And so when I started my think tank, I, I just said, look, we're going to be unapologetic about the fact that we are center-right, market-oriented people. And, and I want people to know that when they read our stuff. Right. right that, let, let's be clear about that. And the rest flows. Douglas Holtz Egan runs the American Action Forum. Uh, tremendous, uh, uh, tremendous run in public policy. Thank you very much for explaining CBO to us today. Great. Yes. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Gov Actually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us.